When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And today, our guest, Charles Baxter, is live and in person with me. Charlie, welcome to the show. It's so Thank great you. to see you in person. Thank you. It's like a, it's, I don't, yeah. It's <laughs> I'm getting, actually here. Getting to see people in person still feels feels new and exciting. Um, so, yeah. This is the third time we've had you on the show. Uh, you were one of our earliest guests on still one of my favorite episodes, which was about, like, Russia and Russian writers and why Americans care about Russian writers, which would be a different show now, I think. Um, yeah, and then you came back with your, uh, you and your friend Mike Alberti, who's a former student of yours, published novels around the same time. We talked about that and students and teachers and your novel, The Sun Collective. Um, and now we're thrilled to have you back to celebrate your just published 18th book, Wonderland's Essays on the Life of Literature. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. So our regular listeners know this, but I'm going to share Charlie's um, amazing bio again. He's the author also, in addition to The Sun Collective, of The Feast of Love, which was nominated for the National Book Award, First Light, Saul and Patsy, Shadow Play, and The Soul Thief, as well as the story collections Believers, Griffin, Harmony of the World, A Relative Stranger, There's Something I Want You to Do, and Through the Safety Net. His stories have been in Best American eight times. He lives here in Minneapolis and teaches at Warren Wilson. In the spring of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, he retired after 18 years of teaching in the MFA program at the U of M. So I was lucky to be a student in your college. Thank you. Yeah, beyond being a celebrated writer of fiction, Charlie, you're one of our most beloved teachers of craft. Wonderlands is the third book you've written, the other two being Burning Down the House and the Art of Subtext. In this book, as in those, you've got these incredible, for me, just like fascinating ideas and concepts about uh, writing. And I wondered if you'd start off by talking a little bit about what a wonderland is, since that's the title of the book, and reading to us from that title essay. Right. Well, uh, wonderlands is a category that uh, my students in a workshop and I cooked up um, during a semester when we were reading a number of books that seemed to have certain features in common. It was also around the time that Jordan Peele's movie Get Out uh, uh, appeared in theaters. And we collectively came up with the idea of Wonderlands. And I'll read um, from the book about it. Wonderlands are caused by, or are expressive of, 
emotional instability, estrangement, fantasy, and solitude. Genuine love is the antidote to any wonderland. So is the feeling of belonging in a particular place. The emotional instability in a wonderland story is both inside, in the mind, and outside, in the setting. There is no clear division between setting and consciousness. They bleed, if that's the right word, into each other. The estrangement one feels in a wonderland can occur, however, in ordinary life. We've all felt it. My students and I even drew up an inventory. First, it's usually somewhat isolated or separated from mainstream life. I, I have bullet points for this, so I'll just go down the list. People there are under a spell or are spellbound or somehow hypnotized. It's a closed system. The visitor doesn't know why anything happens in the way it does. The people in Wonderland look at you or the protagonist strangely and often. There's a lot of staring in Wonderlands. They want you to join them somehow. Having gotten there, the visitor has trouble getting out. It's the Hotel California syndrome. A crime or a series of crimes may underline much of it. The interiors are haunted by something. There's an air of menace, danger, and imminent violence. Subjectivity has leaked into virtually all the settings. It's impossible to get a sense of perspective there, and nature is out of kilter there. So those are just some features of Wonderland. Thank you so much. I think, you know, as you you preface, like, early in that passage, you, you say, you know, it can occur in ordinary life. And I think as I hear that list, as I read it on the page, I was like, oh, this is horrifying. It sounds like my political reality. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't think that I would have been able to come up with this particular category if we hadn't gone through the events of recent history in the way that that we did. I mean, one of my ideas is that realism in fiction works perfectly well when everybody agrees on what reality is. And when there's no general agreement about what reality is, or people are moving away from a fact-based life, you're going to get these wonderlands. You're going to get them very quickly. I'm also just curious about how you settled on, because I think of, I don't know, of course there's Alice, but when we think of wonder, right, I don't know, there's um, Amy Nez's World of Wonders. Um, there's oftentimes when books have the word wonder in the title, um, you think you sort of approach with a sense of joy. Oh, yeah. Here, there's sort of, yesterday I was at Pub Trivia, and hmm. they gave us a graph and asked us what it was, and um, our table was immediately like, oh, like, oh, it's a visualization of the Uncanny Valley and a variety of other people. Like, I think we might have been the only team that got yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me like your concept of Wonderland has something to do with that. It does. Uh, of course, it comes out of Alice in Wonderland, which I think of as not a... It's a, it's a funny novel, but to me it is as much a nightmare as it is a sort of wonderful thing. I think in my case it probably came out of a fairly consistent immersion in the novels, the fiction of Murakami, and particularly his long novel 1Q84, which 
I had reviewed several years ago. And he calls these alternative landscapes that he creates, he calls them wonderlands. Uh, and there's nothing wonderful about them. Yeah, there is. Um, and you write extensively about Murakami in, in the essay. And um, I think that I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about you in another essay about toxic narratives and the bad workshop, you cite Trump as someone who rejected a narrative because it was toxic to him. Right. And it sounds like, I mean, we would all like to maybe escape this world um, and its version of like non-fact-based reality or whatever it is that we're yeah. in. But how do, you, how do news and politics influence your thoughts about craft as you're developing these terms? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say that none of us is immune. I guess you could go off and live in a cave and somehow stay uh, free of what we are confronted with every morning. I know people who have just stopped reading the morning paper and um, who don't watch the news because they find that it's too much to bear. But you know, if you're paying attention to what is happening, you, you gradually, by osmosis, be, you begin to absorb it. And it's bound to affect the kind of fiction that you write. Uh, it certainly has with me. And I, I guess I would say that we all have to write about what it's like to be alive at the time we're living. What else can we do? We can write historical novels, but I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I just think it, I find it fascinating. And I did, you know, there is an idea that craft is, is, uh, is, is separated from politics or reality. Now, our show is about politics and literature and craft, you know. But I did find it really fascinating in the Wonderlands essay that you mentioned, where you talk about how there being no division between setting and consciousness. I thought that was really interesting. And also the toxic narratives essay that seem to be talking about craft ideas and responding to ideas about work that are existing because of the, our current political. I mean, when you mention people being unable to accept narratives that they don't like, that's the, and also people being unable to accept reality, that's what's happened with the election of uh, uh, the dispute over the election. And it seems to me like those essays are directly responding to that. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, I guess I should define very quickly what I think a toxic narrative is. Yeah. Um, a, a toxic narrative is one that either you know or you have lived through or which is true for you, but which you cannot say. You cannot admit it. Uh, uh, for example, just a political idea that Donald Trump's loss in the last election is for him a toxic narrative. It is one that he cannot tell without fundamentally altering his sense of who he is. And when something has happened to you, or more particularly when you've done something which violates who you think you are, you can't tell it. You can't say it. Now, in, in response to the other point that you made, I was, I was just reading Elif Batuman's Either Or, and in the course of that novel, she says that um, she hates craft essays because they don't seem to have anything to do with the actual problems of life. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And I, th for my own part, um, that's wrong. I mean, uh, every one of the essays in Wonderlands arises out of a problem I was trying to solve both in writing and in life. That's one of the great things about the book, and I think really all of your craft essays, that, um, yeah, they take on not only the narratives on the page, but how those interact with the ones you experience in the world and the ones you control and don't control in the world. Um, and, yeah, I think that um, the line that Whitney mentioned before about um, setting and consciousness took me right back, especially because you invoked Get Out to, like, my intense horror. I mean, I basically can't watch horror, um, I've probably talked about this with you before, just like I, and that one, I made myself read the plot beforehand and then go, and it still didn't help. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that sense of unstoppable kind of bleed, yeah. um, between what is the film that has, um, oh, that was the two guys at the lighthouse that came out recently. Did you guys see this? Uh, yeah. Isn't that called the lighthouse? Maybe it I is think... called the lighthouse. Which, yeah, which I think that's the title. Is one of those movies where where the setting and, and remind, when you start talking about the Ancient Mariner in that same essay, I started to think about that movie and the way that setting and consciousness are connected in that movie. The killing of an albatross or the killing of a bird is important in that movie in the way that a killing of an albatross is important in the Ancient Mariner. All that sort of stuff came back, and I thought it was really amazing and connected. Yeah, I, you know, one of the features of uh, the horror genre which I take fairly seriously, is that the atmosphere is always more important than the facts. Um, and the atmosphere, which has everything to do with the setting, uh, seems to have um, buried in it something that you can't immediately find out about it. And so uh, what you see is not necessarily what you get in horror. And I've been thinking about this with uh, reference to um, uh, contemporary movies like Get Out, but also classic English novels like Wuthering Heights, which for me um, is as much a novel of horror as, as say, Dracula is. Um, and structurally, if you look at the openings of those novels and those movies, they all function in more or less the same way. You have to have a visitor arrive at a place, and gradually the visitor falls prey to the atmosphere there. Yeah, like, like the Wicker Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, to totally, yeah. It just reminds me of um, my friend Bennett Sims, um, who wrote what I think maybe it was Salon or Slate called a Proustian zombie novel, which is set in Baton Rouge. He and I were talking about the way that time also expands and contracts yeah. in horror. Mm -hmm. And then I was, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how during the pandemic, so many people have described the same thing or even just kind of 
maybe politics since 2016, since we started this podcast. Um, like our friend Lacey Johnson, who's been on the show a couple times, always she says, time is a soup, um, which she basically <laughs> yeah. started saying it at the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. Um, I, I think during the pandemic, everybody began to notice that something had happened to their perception of time, partly because social occasions weren't occurring in the way they once had, and you felt sort of cooped up in, in, in your house, and time stretched out in ways that you were not used to. Um, and when people went out in public, they weren't looking at each other in the way they once did. Yeah. Uh, both because they had masks on, or they didn't, and um, they were staring at you because you had forgotten to put your mask on. A lot of strange things happened during during the pandemic and are still happening. Um, and that's uh, that has made me think about how atmospheres function, how settings function in fiction and elsewhere. The one thing I thought of reading your the the Wonderland essay, where you're talking about the way that you feel watched, right? And 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 that mm-hmm. is an experience of horror. Um, and that, for instance, like someone who's African American in a white town would feel that way. And that relates to the, the movie Get Out. I felt that way. I was trying to think of examples of times when I felt that way, and I realized that I felt that way being at a swim meet in a part of the city that I knew was Trump friendly right after Trump had done something really bad. I can't remember what it was, right? And everyone was happy and really smiling, but people were wearing Trump gear. And I felt like I, they knew, right? <laughs> that I was they a seditionist, knew. right? And I just felt really weird being there with them smiling and doing all their stuff. Like they were performing for me to show me that they were really happy, nice people, not the terrible thing that their president had just done for, uh, like, that I hated. Yeah, I I think the Wonderland's feeling that you had arises out of maybe two basic causes. One is your your feeling, I don't belong here. And the other feeling is they're all watching me and they know I'm not one of them. Yeah, And when that happens, I mean, when I was in college, we talked a lot about alienation, which is a word that nobody uses anymore. But that fundamental sense of being a stranger in a place where they are looking at you and they may want to do something to you. Uh, if they get their way, they're, they're going to punish you in some way. These are all Wonderland feelings. So we are talking about politics because that's what we do. But I wondered if you could, uh, yeah. there are some straight craft ideas that actually one of them you mentioned in a previous podcast that you did with us that are in here that I wondered if you could just talk about briefly. You know, there's Captain sure. Happens. Um, and there's also specifically this sort of Ode to list making that you have an essay about. I wonder yeah. if you could talk about those two concepts. Sure. The 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 first um, is uh, the Captain Happen character is this figure whom I've, in sense, invented. But I think all a lot of great fiction has figures like this. Uh, Captain Happen figures are less 
subject to norms than the other characters are. Uh, basically, Captain Happen makes things happen. And in a, in a work of fiction, the Captain Happen figure will do things or will say things that nobody else will do or say. And as a result, he, she, or they make the situation very volatile. And that's what we need in fiction. We don't want to have characters who are nice and sweet and law-abiding and kind and gentle and careful. We don't want to have people like that in our fiction all the time because where's the story? Fiction requires drama, and for that you need a Captain Happen character. And the, the, the second point about lists is that I've become very attached to what I call inventory fiction as I've gotten older, particularly as members of my family have died off and I've had to deal with the things that they have left behind. Um, but I, I'm, I've also been conscious of the fact that a, a lot of fiction, beginning with the book of Job, poses the question of what kind of a person you would be if by chance or God or circumstance everything you had was taken away. What would your life look like and what would your character be if suddenly you had nothing? So I... I I've been interested in fiction that accumulates things. Jamaica Kincaid's fiction often does this. Uh, lists of commands, the uh, story that... Uh, Are you thinking of Girl? Girl. I'm just blanking on the title. Uh, or, or Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which is in some ways a kind of inventory story. Uh, William Maxwell's So Long, See You Tomorrow, which accumulates both positive inventories. These are the things that the boy has. And toward the end of the novel, negative inventories. All these things are being taken away from him. What kind of a boy is he going to be when that happens? Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So... Um, Positive inventories, negative inventories. What kind of a person is Job going to be if you take everything away from him? Is he, is he still going to be a just man in the sight of God, or is he going to be something else? And this is also, I mean, so much a question of modern politics. I mean, you're describing like, the experience of displacement and dispossession, which so many people are living through and have lived through. I've been thinking a lot about strangers, and our relation to the characters we read about who are strange to us when we start reading and the function of strangers, the way that structurally they create um, an avenue into a story if, if a writer has placed a stranger at the beginning of, of the tale and also because with what I think we are now seeing the vast migrations of populations of one part 
of the world to another. What do we do when strangers enter our lives? All the great religions say that we should welcome the stranger. And yet so few people do. Uh, well, I said all the great religions say that, but it's not what people necessarily do. Um, we were strangers in Egypt, therefore we welcome the stranger. Well, I hope so. Yeah. So Whitney mentioned those two terms, and I think that so many of the so much of the vocabulary. I think you and I had a, a student who worked with both of us a couple of years ago, who was sort of thanked you for the gift of vocabulary mm. um, that you give to students. And this vocabulary is very much part of the it's part of the DNA of our program. And a thing that I did in the class I taught this past fall was that um, I had students watch a lecture that you had given that had all of these terms in it that I think is like a version of versions of those are in here. And um, there's a couple more. There's um, a request moment and the one-way gate. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those. Sure. Let me start with the one-way gate. Um, the the, the one-way gate, I don't think I invented this phrase. I'm sure I came upon it somewhere, but uh, I no longer remember where that was. The one-way gate is an action that a character takes or that a human being takes and once you have performed that action, you cannot go on being the person you were. You've gone through a gate, and it's one way. Uh, the most obvious example of this is to say that once you have committed a murder, you are a murderer. You can't undo that action. And the reason it's important to fiction writers is that it advances the story to another level, into another act. If a character has done something that is unforgivable, it means that he, she, or they simply have to go forward. They can't go back. They can't undo what they have done. Uh, and what was the other? Request moment. Oh, the request moment. Uh, I had begun to notice that a lot of Shakespeare's plays and quite a few short stories uh, began with one character saying to another, please do something for me. That's the first part of the request moment. The second part of the request moment is, you'll do this if you're my fill-in-the-blank, if you're my friend, if you love me, You'll do this, I mean, the boys taunt each other by saying, you'll do this if you've really, if you're a real man, if you, if, if you have courage. And the third thing is the story clock in a, a request moment, which is, and you have to do it by tonight. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you, you, if, if you have all the time in the world to do the thing that has been posed to you, then all of the tension dribbles away. So just listening to you talk about this, and Whitney and I were talking about doing an upcoming episode on Joe Manchin, whom we um, both have feelings about. And um, you know, I got a request moment for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, the whole nation, the whole world had a request yeah. moment for that guy. And he yeah. had a ticking clock, and mm -hmm. um, and he failed. And, and you know, um, or another example, like, I don't know, was, was 2016 a one-way gate for all of us? Yeah. You know, or um, yeah. there are so many ways that I, I now think about these ideas and feel like I can apply them regrettably to <laughs> things that are occurring and then, yeah, the narratives around us. So, um, yeah, Joe Manchin... 
um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Macbeth, and I'm like, that guy's also not going to be able to wash all the blood from his hand. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think that's right. You know, there's a wonderful book, a nonfiction book, called My Century, and um, its ostensible author is Alexander Vought, W A T, and these are interviews that were compiled um, by. As I get older, I forget I forget names. But Vaught um, was in prison. He was in the gulag, and there was a um, uh, old Bolshevik in with him. And Vaught asked him, "Why did you go along with the show trials in in 1937, the Stalin show trials?" And Vaught said, "We were, or no, the guy, the guy, the Bolshevik said to Vaught, we were all up to our elbows in blood." There was no way to go back. You might as well go forward. Uh, to, to lie about your guilt in the show trials, this was nothing. And uh, just to your point, Sugi, uh, I think this country has gone through a one-way gate. I, don't, I just don't think that after Trump, we're the same country. We can't pretend that we're the same country that we were. It feels like the January 6th hearings are like an argument about whether they were a one-way gate or not. Mm-hmm. Or there for some people, some people are getting are being able to say like that the lawyers who were like this is a bad idea don't do this are getting to say I didn't go through that gate. Mm-hmm. And other people are the ones who got trapped on the other side who did go through and aren't now able to say or admit that they did something that they knew was wrong. Like Mark Meadows, for instance. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard the word collaborator used uh, in contemporary American history. Um, but it certainly is a thought that has come to me. Uh, and uh, Stacy Durasmo, who is a friend of mine, is coming out with a novel called uh, The Complicities. And it's a novel that's very much about how you may become complicit with something that you haven't actually done, but you went along with. Oh, how timely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think this is that moment in, in American history when complicity and collaboration start to become key ideas. And I think the January 6th hearings, exactly, I think it's about this. Who participated and who didn't? And the people, who, a lot of the people who did participate don't want to talk about it. So, of course, like a lot of what we're talking about is intensely depressing and hard. And, you know, when you were on the show earlier, um, the guest on the other half was um, my old pal, Sana Krasikov, who who talked about sort of like the morality of like, internal alienation during times of crisis. Like, what does it mean to kind of set sail even in your own mind? And, but I, that also makes me wonder... I feel like we also read, and I have seen articles like this that sort of say, do not read the news. It's not healthy for you, and you don't need to. It won't change your choices. And I wonder what that means for writers. Like, what does it mean for us to, because you, you write about how generative da- disasters are for writers yeah. in the Toxic Narratives essay, yeah. but how does it change us to write about disaster when we feel surrounded by it? Well, you internalize it. Uh, but I also think that there's a reaction, uh, it, at least in my own case, which is that for the last two years or so, I've been thinking 
these are difficult times. Do I want to put my reader through more difficulties? I don't know if I do. What I really want to do is to get my reader to laugh. I've been working on a comic novel because I think that's what I would like my reader to do, to just race through a book, have a wonderful time reading it. Uh, it can be, it can have some relevant materials. I hope I'm not evading your question. I, I just so. think there's only so much darkness that we can sustain. And then we just flip out. As you might imagine, I've spent some time <laughs> thinking about that. So this is not only a craft book, but also um, a very personal book. And in a section called Interludes, there are two personal essays. Um, why did you choose to include them here? Well, partly because I thought that the craft essays also had an autobiographical slant the the essay about the request moment is very much about my mother. I had a very bossy mother who um, was always saying things to me as soon as I got home, like, there's something I want you to do. And, and the inventory essay is partly about my brother Tom. And because I had used these autobiographical materials, I thought, well, I can also... Uh, put in some straight autobiography, and one of them, All the Dark Nights, that essay is about the, uh, in some ways, what we've been talking about just now, um, how you get through the difficult periods if you're a writer. Um, you write something that nobody wants to publish, or you write something and, and it gets published, but it doesn't get reviewed. Um, and how do you manage that? The, 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 other, the other essay that's in that section, What Happens in Hell, is about a rollover accident I was in in the Bay Area. And that essay is very much about why my driver, the driver of the car that was taking me to the airport and then back to Stanford where I was teaching, why he was obsessed with hell as a place and why he was telling me about it and what kind of function the story of hell has for people who want to tell that story. Um, so I was trying to combine all those things. Um, you're very frank. Uh, you mentioned books that don't get published, and in All the Dark Nights, um, you mentioned you know, your experiences of rejection. But as we've said, this is your 18th book. And you know, we talk a lot about capitalism and productivity on this show, and, and I'm just curious what it means to you to be productive as a writer. Because you also um, have said that, you know, at the stage of your career, it means something different to you to be published. You care about it somewhat less. But then you're also obviously thinking about your reader. I'm thinking about the writing. I'm not thinking about the pub publication very much anymore. I, I have to say, you know, I look at the list of books that I've written, and half the time I can't believe it. I just, I can't believe that I did that. Uh, and also, in some sense, I can't remember doing that. Um, there's a 
there's a section in Anna Karenina when Tolstoy says about a painter, Mikhailov, that Mikhailov suffers through these paintings that he's doing. He does a portrait of Anna. And after he's done it, he can't remember having done it. And that's often the way it is with me. I, I, um, I can't remember doing these. Some of them I can, of course. It's not that I'm completely oblivious. But um, it's like trying to reconstruct a dream after you've dreamed it. Uh, and after you've written a book, it's like the dream departs from you. Um, I once heard Peter Matheson, I think it was Peter Matheson, talk about a book that, that he had written in a hurry. And somebody asked him, well, why did you write it so fast? And he said, I could feel it leaving me. Oh, that's beautiful, actually. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, I, I once heard Al Pacino say about the role he was playing in Dog Day Afternoon that it was a very difficult part for him to do because he, could, he kept feeling that character leaving him. Um, and I sort of feel that way uh, about the books I've written. I know that I've written them. I can kind of remember the, how things were when I wrote them, but once they're written, they're gone. Well, this book is not gone for me yet anyway. Um, I really enjoyed uh, reading it and getting a chance to talk to you about it, and we want to encourage... I, I mean, I just thought when you were talking about trying to write a, a book that made your readers feel happy, this made me feel happy, or Good. at least uh, deeply engaged. Thank you. So we want to encourage our listeners to pick up Wonderlands, which is basically, in my view and Sugi's view, an instant classic, as well as Charlie's other books. And Charlie, we appreciate you joining us again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charlie. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Kinnigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there. <laughs>